0: Our Father, we have gathered as your people to do just that, to praise the name of Jesus Christ, the one who was slain in our place, the one who lived the life that we should have lived, and then died the death that we should have died. As the substitute for your people, and as the result of his perfect, uh, completed, finished work, we stand here as people, forgiven, restored, Loved on our way to heaven. And so we come to praise the name of the one who is uh, the one who spilled his blood in our place. We um, are glad people, people who understand that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope of redemption, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of uh, release, no hope of freedom, but in Christ Jesus. Our souls have been set free. Our Father, we do pray for a nation that has lost its moral and spiritual way. We pray that you will use us as a part of uh, the the project of bringing that country back to the realization that we were and uh, should and hoped to be a nation built on righteousness. And I pray, Lord, for our president, that you'll give him wisdom as he is abroad even now, that you will guard him and that you will use him to uh, speak truth in the ears of all of Europe and all of the, uh, the entire globe, Lord. Uh, keep him safe and give him wisdom that is born from on high. Lord, we pray for the group of people from this church that, is right, that are right now in Guatemala seeking to uh, uh, minister in the name of Christ Jesus there on a garbage dump. We pray that you'll guard them that you'll use them and that you will use them to encourage the people who live there permanently. We pray for the group who is in Colorado. Pray that you'll guard them and give them a, a fresh and enriching time with their families. But Father, we who are here long to be a part of an hour where we can fix ourselves and fix our attention on what you say, what you require, what you demand, who you are, and what would bring you pleasure. We pray that you will meet us here in all that we say and do. Might our giving reflect that we love you? Might our words in the halls reflect the same thing? Father, we are a people who know of our inconsistencies. We are They are more glaring to us than to others. We pray, Lord God, that here you might continue that great work of changing us more into the image of Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to that and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me invite your attention to uh, the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. And before I read my text, I need to make sure you understand something. Um, We closed last week at the end of chapter 10, and I'm going to skip the first 18 verses of chapter 11. I I told you that a couple, three weeks ago. The reason is that the event that is related to you in chapter 10 is, is rehearsed in chapter 11. What happens is after... Peter and Cornelius met in Cornelius' house. Uh, Peter had to defend that action before his peers in Jerusalem. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and he tells the same story. It's the same story in chapter 11 that was really contained in chapter 10. So I'm skipping that because in essence we've already covered it. I want to begin at verse 19 as the story of the um, expanding kingdom of Jesus Christ continues. Acts chapter 11. At verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I'm not sure who said this first, but I think it was perhaps Bill Hybels who first said, there's nothing more beautiful than the Christian church when the Christian church is doing what the Christian church was designed to do. I really heard that first from Richard Hall, and and my soul resonates with such an idea. That is, there's nothing more beautiful than the Christian church when the Christian church is doing what she's intended to do. Um, This is what you see discussed, I think, in verses 19 through 30. Uh, and and I, I think it's really something beautiful. Um, I want to be a part of something like this, and I think you do too. So I want to describe it for you this morning and let you decide as to this is something that you want to be a part of. But before I do that, I want to make sure that uh, you don't leave here with a mistaken notion. When I get finished, I'm going to list you five or six uh, features of what I consider to be ecclesiastical beauty. But when you leave here, I, I hope you don't leave with the idea that I'm telling you, all right, that's the way they are, so let's all of us go out and do it like them. Let's all go be like that. I, I'm not. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. I am trying to say this. I am trying to say when the Holy Spirit is alive in a place, you will see some of these things in what he's doing. Some of the things that you see here are evidences of the presence of the Holy Spirit's work in a place. And so then you can begin to um, measure what you're a part of and see if uh, the Holy Spirit is doing the same kinds of things in your midst. One of the benefits that you get in studying the book of Acts is that you begin to develop a paradigm for what a church should look like. Gang, you don't know how often I'm uh, in discussions with people who say, can you believe that stuff that's going on on the televisions? Can you believe that? <laughs> that stuff is awful on the television that I watch. And, and, uh, and they want to know how can people be so deluded and how could they be caught up in something so foolish and so off, off the mark? Well, well I, I know there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the, the reasons are complex. But one of the reasons, part of the reason at least, is that there is a, there is a wholesale i think lack of discernment on the part of the people of God when they begin to estimate or evaluate the environment in which they find themselves? Well, how do you get that? How do you get that kind of ability to discern? How do you get to the place where you can that you are better at, not ever perfect, none of us are, but how do you get to the place where you can spot the real and as opposed to that which is, I don't know, contrived. Well, one of the ways you can do that is to, is to soak yourself in what you see in the Scriptures. And as you begin to, uh, to recognize what the Holy Spirit was doing, then you begin to see, well, that doesn't in any way measure up with that. And, and you're, you're better able to, to discern that which is a part of the Holy Spirit's work as opposed to um, something that's a piece of marketing or a piece of um, uh, personality or etc. So that's what I want you to see here. The, the, uh, the features of, of something that's beautiful that the Holy Spirit is, is, has authored here. As, as it relates to this passage in verses 19 through 30 of the book of Acts, chapter 11. There's about five or six features that I want you to take a look at and that I think um, perhaps not in the same way, but certainly uh, similarities to anything that the Holy Spirit is doing. He's going to do it similar, I think, to what you see going on here first of all, the first feature of this beauty uh, has to do with the the expansion and the pushing out of this church. And I want you to notice that that is done. This, this expansion outward is led by a highly mobilized laity. Gang, uh, I'm afraid that we preachers have robbed you of a thrill that was intended to be yours. We... Um, We all long, all of us long to live meaningful lives, lives that matter, lives that count. I I think that's true. And I think you'll agree that there is nothing more meaningful than sensing that God somehow is using little old me, little old you, to be a a conveyor of his mercy and grace to other people. Well, um, your life, as well as mine, is filled with opportunity of doing just that. But I'm afraid, that at least part of the reason we clergy types are so insecure, we've been trying to convince you that, that that's our job, that, that we're the trained, we're the professionals, and um, we've almost uh, robbed you of something that was intended to be yours. Gang, this church that you see outlined here is expanded on the backs of a highly mobilized laity. Now, do you remember that we mentioned this back in chapter 8? you remember after the persecution of Stephen? And it's mentioned here in verse 19. After the persecution of Stephen in Jerusalem, the church uh, kind of got thrust out of Jerusalem. And the only ones that were left behind were the apostles. They're the only ones that stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else scattered. And the church gets expanded by these scattered. Now, who were they? It was everybody but the apostles. Everybody but the professionals. Everybody but the hierarchy. They're back in Jerusalem. The church is being expanded on the backs of a highly mobilized laity. It was the rank and file, ladies and gentlemen, who were out front beating the bushes, not the the apostles. I I wish I could burn that into your souls and hearts and minds. In the first century church, in its pristine purity, when the church was at her best, who do you find carrying the mantle? It was the laity. It was a highly mobilized laity, and as the church expands all the way up to Antioch, who was it that was responsible? It wasn't the professional. It was it was the laity was up and and beating the bushes and seeing people wonder Christ as they moved out into the countryside. My job is to train you and to encourage you and equip you and empower you, and then get out of your way. And that's what you see going on here. But gang, any, any environment, ecclesiastically, that discourages you from that, well, is just not... They didn't learn that from the Scriptures. Um, gang, if you are encouraged to be a, a consumer or a spectator or uh, to sit by passively... That's not something that the Holy Spirit is, is doing. Here, it is the empowering and the, uh, the, the mobilization of laity that leads to the expansion of the kingdom. When, if you are, and including here, if you are encouraged to be nothing more than a spectator, then something is awry, something is amiss because the Holy Spirit is expanding through a highly mobilized laity. Here's the second feature that I want you to see in this text. By the way, you, you will notice that I, I really drew that out of verse 19. There arose a persecution after, and then they travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, and Antioch. That was the people scatter. Here's the second feature of beauty. This place was something that was highly Christocentric. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But notice, first of all, verse 20. Um, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus verse 21 the hand of the Lord verse 21 they uh believed and turned to the Lord verse 23 uh continue with the Lord verse 24 uh and a great many people were added to the Lord that's what i mean by Christocentric. that is there is a these people were as a group were fixated on the Lord people didn't turn to the church they turned to the Lord. The people were not added to the church. They were added to the Lord. You know, gang, um, 21st century evangelicalism is, is a really uh, interesting <laughs> place because there's so much discussion that's going on. And I, and perhaps you've been a part of some of it. If you read Christian magazines, you're going to see it a lot. There's so much discussion going on as to methodology. That is, um, are you a contemporary church or a traditional church? Are you a high church, low church? Are you um, a conservative church or a liberal church? Are you a seeker-driven church or a non-seeker-driven church? Here's my point. It seems to me that when Christ pulsates from the heart of all you're doing as a church, that discussion never comes up. What does come up, Frequently, over and over and over again, is people joined to the Lord, people continuing with the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the preaching of the Lord, the message was the Lord, the encouragements were the Lord. It was all a one big Christocentric group of people who were fascinated and overcome by the Lord. You know, the only personality Cult that you would find in this church was a personality of Jesus. People who were overcome or tasted, by, tasted grace, they, they just couldn't get enough of the Lord. Now, gang, that means if you're in an environment where, where the, 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 the concentration is on another person of the Trinity then something is amiss. Because the, the Holy Spirit's job is done when people are concentrated and fixated on the Lord Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, says Jesus in John 16, he will glorify me. And that's what you see happening here. One of the features, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit doing his thing is that people are so overtaken with everything about who Jesus is and what he's up to. So, any environment that has another emphasis is an environment that simply doesn't square with what you see happening in the first century church. Here's a third feature. Did you notice this in verse 23? By the way, let let me tell you the story again real quickly. The church is expanding because of persecution of Stephen, and people are thrust out of Jerusalem, and people are being converted all over the countryside. The Jerusalem church gets somewhat concerned about what's happening in the expansion, and so it sends Barnabas out to check up on all that's going on. Barnabas, being the great heart that he is, he comes to Antioch, and you'll notice in verse 23, it says, When he came to Antioch and had seen the grace of God. Now, how do you see it? A visible manifestation of grace. Is that something that you can see? Well, apparently so. Barnabas saw it. It wasn't heard. It wasn't felt. It was seen. The grace of God in in this group of people was seen. How do you see it? How do you see grace? Well, gang, I I can think of several ways that you see it. Um, it, it, It's seen objectively in people's countenance. Gang, um, have you ever seen somebody who has finally discovered that he's forgiven? You can see it in um, so many little acts of grace and mercy that... That, that 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 the people of God perform. I one of my privileges is that I get to watch you do those things. I get to watch you perform little acts and little um little um uh events of grace. You can see it in relationships, you can see it in in people weaving their lives together in the body of Christ. Barnabas saw that stuff. He saw that stuff going on, and and it was observable evidence of a changed life in the people there in Antioch. And all of that convinced Barnabas that this was something that was genuinely of God's spirit. It was real, because he saw the grace of God. I I think there's another way that you can see it. It's almost less objective, but um, gang... It's it's something that is, it's a climate, it's an atmosphere. You walk into a place and you wonder, I mean, you don't sense um, that they're highly censorious or or highly judgmental. You sense an atmosphere where there's a readiness and a quickness to forgive. You sense that. You see it in people. That they are, they're not quick to judge. Gang, this place that was authored and created by the Holy Spirit of God, it's, it's evidenced by grace. The Holy Spirit doesn't build the legal. He doesn't build legalisms or legalistic. What he builds is atmospheres, atmospheres and communities where grace is sensed and tasted and felt and seen and observed. Other than that, I mean it doesn't say here that Barnabas saw legalities. He saw grace. There's a fourth feature that I, I hope that you noticed. You saw them preaching the Lord, and then Barnabas immediately departs to find Saul at Tarsus. Because at this place, the emphasis was on preaching evangelistically and teaching. Because Barnabas understood that evangelistic preaching is always to be accompanied by teaching. In fact, in the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, there are two different Greek words. Kerugma. And didache the karutma was this proclamation of jesus christ and all of his beauty and then there was this body of teaching of orthodoxy called the didache in fact it was even printed up and later distributed well barnabas understood that the great commission has two parts that conversion represents not the end but the beginning and so it was time to go get Paul out of mothballs. He hadn't seen Paul in ten years. But Paul, he knew to be the finest teacher available. And so he races to Tarsus to bring Saul back to Antioch so teaching can begin. It's interesting, I think, or at least it, um, Barnabas is not there in Antioch to be the big cheese or to become the, uh, the, the pope of Antioch. He's not there to keep these people to himself. He races to get Paul or Saul because he knows that teaching is so necessary. And then if you'll notice, as a result of this evangelistic preaching and teaching in verse 24, um, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Real church growth takes place, ladies and gentlemen. Real church growth. Now, by the way, I was in a conversation in Budapest, Hungary uh, in late April or early April with a man who used that term, real church growth. Now, guys, there's a difference between real church growth and church growth. Um, Church growth is happening a lot of places in America. But is it real church growth? Let me give you a statistic that might alarm you. It does me. you know, the the number of megachurches all over this country has just soared. Megachurches springing up all over the country. A megachurch, by the way, is defined as one that has 2,000 or more attending each Sunday. Okay, Mega churches are springing up all over the country. But did you realize that at the same time, with all these megachurches that are springing up, that overall church attendance is going down? Now, what does that say? It says that church growth is taking place as churches just shuffle the deck. <laughs> They're being... Uh, the, the population is moving to larger church centers. But in terms of real church growth, that is, people being added to the Lord, that's not happening. Churches are getting bigger. But in terms of real additions to the household of faith, that's not happening. It's happening here. It's happening in this church that the Holy Spirit is is, is present within. Real church growth, which should be characteristic of something that the Holy Spirit is doing. And then there's another mark that the Holy Spirit, or one of the things that this church is up to, you'll, you'll find it in verses 27 through 30. A, um, a prophet by the name of Agabus comes to town and predicts a, a famine is about to take place. And by the way, that's a famine that was verified by uh, one Jewish historian, Josephus, And two Roman historians, Suetonius and Tacitus, both mention this same famine. But what happens? As a result of this prediction of a famine, we're told there that the church there in Antioch uh, raises money to send it to the church in Judea, the church back in Jerusalem. What you have in in Antioch is wealthier Christians uh, putting together money to send to Poorer Christians there in Jerusalem. Now that would be, ladies and gentlemen, get this, that would be Gentiles in Antioch sending money to Jewish Christians in Judea, Jerusalem. As a result of seeing a need arise, a whole new ministry of of, uh, mercy arises. Spontaneously. These people see, well, uh, we got the ability over here and there's a need over there. And the two need to somehow get together. So as a result of, by the way, there was nothing, no great uh, uh, campaign. It was simply a prediction of a famine. And people said, okay, well, let's get together and uh, um, uh, address that need. I want you to notice uh, in um, verse 29, determined to send relief to the brethren That is not accidental language, ladies and gentlemen. That is Gentiles now calling Jews their brothers. There is a community, there is a commonality in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice one other thing, guys. As a result, in what the Holy Spirit is creating in this place is that um, each of them, verse 29, gave according to his ability... Nobody sets up a 10% business. The issue is ability. No percents, no rates, no minimums. It's just the more you have, the more ability you have, and the more ability you have, the more you gave. Early on, ladies and gentlemen, early on, the church saw that this was one of her duties. There was no marketing strategies. There was no big push. It was just... Something when the Holy Spirit is building something, he he convinces in our heart of hearts that where need exists and ability exists, the two are to somehow get together. You know, gang, there are some Christians who've been Christians for a lot of years who are not yet in possession of that principle. Well, here it is. Here's the principle. One of my duties is to give... Not according to a percentage, but according to an ability. Gang, listen to me. Most of us, most of us could give away 10% of our income and never miss it. The issue is not a percentage. The issue is the size of the need and the size of the ability. Forget the percents. Pray over your ability. The issue is ability, not, not a percentage. And that's what you see arising from this place that the Holy Spirit is building there in Antioch. Now, one other feature that I want you to see, and this is kind of my favorite, because, gang, you, you recognize, you, you remember this statement. It was a famous statement on the part of Jesus. He said, Uh, And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's found in Matthew 16. Remember that statement? Everybody knows that statement. Well, uh, I want to make an observation that is not original with me. People have a a, a whole lot smarter than me have made it long before me. And they said that uh, the the idea that people have is that the church is withstanding this enormous assault by the forces of hell, but the church is going to win. Well, that's not what's said there. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Gates, ladies and gentlemen. Gates are an item that imply defensive. That is, it is not the church on the defensive and hell on the offensive. It's just the other way around. It's the church on the offensive and the gates of hell trying to be on the defensive will not withstand the assault of the church. Now, the reason I say all of that is this Antioch is a classic illustration. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. Um, first of all, if you know anything about the geography, let me tell you where Antioch is. If you can imagine where Israel is, right there in the Mediterranean uh, Ocean, Mediterranean Sea, go north, and as the landmass moves west and left, where Turkey is, it's right up in that corner. Antioch was founded in 300 B.C. uh, by uh, Seleucus Nicator, who was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. He named it after his father Antiochus. His father's name Antiochus, he named it Antioch. And um, it became one of the, well, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was swept into the Roman Empire by Pompey in 64 B.C. It was a city of about a half a million, uh, 500,000 people uh, and outside the city limits, about five miles outside the city limits, there was a temple to Daphne where sex was, um, was enthroned, where it became the, um, the whole uh, focus of the religion. It was uh, worshiped through temple prostitutes called priestesses. Now, isn't that a 21st century euphemism? uh temple prostitutes called priestesses well in addition to daphne there was a there was a shrine to jupiter and apollo it was a city known for its moral laxity it was kind of the amsterdam of the of the ancient world it was a, a, the capital of the imperial province of syria it was uh, very cosmopolitan. Uh, and at One of the three uh, educational centers of the Roman Empire had a wide range of ethnic origins. And in that regard, it was much like, say, a New York or in L.A. Now, guys, uh, here's the point. It's in that setting that Christianity plants a flag. Uh, not, only, um, not only does Christianity plant a flag... But Antioch becomes the center of the, uh, the new center of the Christian church, not Jerusalem. It moves. It moves out of Jerusalem, the old, old covenant city, into Antioch, this Gentile city. Paul launches all of his missionary journeys from Antioch. Um, it, it is one of the ancient world's most respected but most wicked cities. Now here's, but it is there. There that Christianity flourishes. I think it's also noteworthy, ladies and gentlemen, that it was in Antioch where we received the name that we now bear, Christians, which is a name that means those are the people who belong to Christ. It was probably originally a derisive term, but it's very descriptive. Those people, you know, who belong to Jesus. But in this pagan idolatrous, affluent, sex-saturated, cosmopolitan city. There had been so much Christian activity that the city had to develop a name that they could label them with. That is, the Christian church had made such an impression that they at least spoke about the presence of those people, you know, who belonged to Jesus, those Christians. In a, in a city, ladies and gentlemen, known for her moral laxity, a city known for its, its idolatry, that's the city. That's the city where Jesus plants a flag. Her presence, that is the presence of the church, had been so felt in that city that she couldn't be ignored. To me, that's beautiful. Don't you want, don't you want to do that here? Gang, um, when, when Jesus gets ready to build his church, the gates of hell won't stop him. There's, there's no political party. The Democrats aren't going to stop us. The Republicans aren't going to stop us. The Supreme Court's not going to stop us. Hollywood's not going to stop us. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're not going to stop us, ladies and gentlemen. When Jesus gets ready to build his church, it's going to get built. And as much as all of these societal trends discourage us as the people of God. They didn't stop him in the past and they're not going to stop him now. There's one other thing I want you to see and then I'll, I'll finish. It's interesting to me and a part of the beauty that the center for Christianity has moved. Gang, do you realize that that's one of the proofs of the, of the uniqueness of Christianity? That the center moved? It moved not only once, it's moved several times. But the um, Islam has been and still is centered in the Middle East. Uh, Hinduism has been and still is centered in India. Buddhism has been and still is centered in the Far East. But Christianity, on the other hand, it was first centered in Jerusalem. Then it moved to Antioch. Then it moved to Rome. Then it moved to Western Europe. Then it moved to the Americas. And some people would tell you, some missiologists would tell you, that it's on the move again. Or perhaps already has moved. To maybe Africa, South America, South Korea. But the move of the center of Christianity is an evidence, I think gives evidence, to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is the one who's in charge here. He's the one that's building his church all over the world. And, and guys, that's beautiful to me. I want to be a part of something like that. Don't you? Don't you want to be a part of something that the Holy Spirit is doing that is expanding and is that is planting a flag in the midst of just the most negative of circumstances? Folks, um, I'll say this to you and with this I'll, I'll quit. When I read passages like this, the thing that strikes me is... Is the the amazing change in people's lives that have been wrought when they've come when they've had this exposure to Jesus Christ? First of all, their name gets changed. You know, there's more to it than just being called a Christian. That is the whole identity. We our identity has changed. We um, we learn things about um, about Jesus Christ, and we become centered upon knowing more and more as much about Him as we possibly can. We are a people who, uh, uh, whose spending habits are absolutely revolutionized. That is, we're writing checks these days that we would have never dreamed that we would have been writing years ago. We, we are a lifelong student of his word. We, have a, um, we, we, we are a, a, a part of a place that's not discouraged by even the raunchiest of circumstances. Your eyes change, your smile changes, your gait changes. All because we have come into contact with someone that has so revolutionized us as as to who we are from the the center of our being. That's the kind of people who comprise this church here. People who are overtaken with what Jesus has done and who he is. And as a result, all of their life changes. The Bible says... Blessed is the man whose God is the Lord. Yeah. Blessed is the man whose God is the Lord. And when this Lord is his God, his whole life erupts and becomes something different. This Lord that that this church in Antioch is so consumed with, is that the one that you're committed to? Is this the one who has changed the way you think and changed the way that you spend and changed the way that you respond and changed your relationships and changed your language? And is, is that what he's done to you too? Because that's what he does. When the Holy Spirit grants us eyes to see this Savior, man, from the inside out we become revolutionized. Is that who, you, is that who you're related to? If not, I plead with you, don't leave here this day until you are. The one who pulsates from the middle of this church is the one who must pulsate from the middle of your soul. That's good. Our Father, I do pray that your people might find themselves more and more alerted, more and more trained, more and more in tune with what the Holy Spirit produces, with what, he, uh, with, with what He authors, with how He works, that we might see here something by which we can measure our church. And Father, might men who, and women who have come here today, outside of the household of faith, find something with which they can measure their souls. Might there be something so real, so beautiful, so attractive, so engaging, so magnetic, that they would not want to leave this room until they have discovered and found it. Father, the rest of us who have been swept by your Holy Spirit into the household of faith, we reverence you, we thank you for saving us, and we glory in the one who made it possible this is Jesus, who to know is life eternal. And so, Father, bring us to the place that more and more we think according to your word, that we evaluate according to this book, and that more and more we are thinking as these folks were thinking day in and day out about Jesus Christ the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who is the highest loyalty of our lives. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.